0: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this.
1: Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com/socks.
2: The commute from a snow, snowy hell. Twenty-four hours in a car, barely moving twenty-four feet. The lead starts right now. Thousands stuck and stranded on a busy Virginia interstate, some with babies and dogs, no food or water, and quickly running out of gas. If they haven't already, how did this happen? Music to the ears of a lot of parents. President Biden today proclaiming that schools should be open, as the CDC is about to make yet another change to its isolation guidance. And... The Zoom call to stop a possible war will take you inside a pending global alliance meeting hoping to stop Vladimir Putin's invasion itch. Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start today with The Health Lead, a powerful message this afternoon from President Joe Biden, an ally of teachers' unions nonetheless saying that they need to keep schools open amid the push by some teachers' unions to return to remote learning. Take a listen.
3: We have no reason to think at this point that Omicron is worse for children than previous variants. We know that our kids can be safe when in school, by the way. That's why I believe schools should remain
2: open. Those remarks come as pediatric hospitalizations are the highest they've ever been during the pandemic, especially almost entirely among unvaccinated kids. Children, according to the CDC, are the least vaccinated age group in the United States. Those younger than five, of course, still not eligible for a vaccine. Let's get right to CNN's Jeff Zeleny live at the White House. And Jeff, Biden's message today was, be concerned about Omicron, but do not be alarmed. Jake, it was, and this
4: was, uh, he was attending his first uh, formal COVID briefing of this new year, and he bluntly acknowledged what has become obvious, that Omicron cases are rising, and he said they will continue rising for the next several weeks. He also acknowledged the frustration that is uh, really bubbling up toward this administration and a lack of testing. He said he feels it, and you could hear it in his voice.
3: I know this remains frustrating. Believe me, it's frustrating to me. But we're making improvements. In the last two weeks, we've stood up federal testing sites all over the country. Look, with more capacity for in-person tests, we should see waiting lines shortened and more appointments freed up.
4: Now, Jake, it was only a year ago when then President-elect Biden blasted the Trump administration's testing policy as a travesty. Now, many allies and critics alike are saying similar things for this administration. Of course, many things have changed. There are now at-home tests, if you can get your hands on one, and many things indeed have changed. But one thing the administration is still trying to work on right now are those half a billion tests the president promised to be out in January. The contracts are now being secured. They'll likely be signed by the end of the week, but there is no... uh, guarantee that those will be available to be sent out this month, perhaps at the end of the month or the beginning of next month. So, Jake, for all that's going on, testing remains one of the central challenges of this administration. The president said so today
2: himself. Jeff Zeleny at the White House, thanks so much. Appreciate it. In New York, the city's new mayor says he will not feed into the, quote, hysteria around the rising COVID case numbers after he rejected the city's largest teacher, teachers union's request to temporarily move to remote learning. As long as vaccines, masking, ventilation and testing are all part of the education process, medical experts do agree there is a steep price to keeping kids out of the classroom, as CNN's Alexandra Field reports.
5: We cannot feed into hysteria. This is traumatizing our children.
1: Facing an unprecedented COVID surge, New York City's new mayor insisting schools really are the safest place for children. We have to reshape our thinking of how do we live with COVID. The vast majority of schools throughout the country are pressing on and keeping students in the classroom.
6: What we've learned over the past Two years is that there's significant risk keeping children out of school.
1: But according to the data company Burbio, more than 3,200 schools are going remote or delaying returns from winter break. L.A. Unified School District the latest to push back its start date by one day and require proof of a negative test. In Chicago, the powerful teachers union is threatening a walkout over decisions to bring students back to the classroom contact tracing, and vaccination efforts by her administration have been an abject failure. Across the country, pediatric hospitalizations are still rare, but now at a record high, spurring questions over whether children are being hospitalized for COVID or with COVID, as well as questions about the impact of Omicron on children.
7: Now, did those
0: children show up because they had a broken leg or a broken arm and then happened to test positive for COVID versus did they show up because they had trouble breathing because of COVID-19? I think we would be foolish to keep minimizing COVID-19 in children at this point in the pandemic.
1: Overall, hospitalizations nationwide surpassing 100,000 for the first time since September.
8: When I talk to doctors in the emergency room uh, and my colleagues who are in hospitals around the country, they continue to emphasize that the people they are seeing who are hospitalized are primarily those are not vaccinated.
1: The sheer volume of cases coming with dire consequences. One in five hospitals with an ICU, that's more than 700 hospitals, reporting that at least 95% of ICU beds were full last week, according to the Department of Health and Human Services. In Massachusetts, doctors and nurses are sounding alarm bells with an urgent appeal. We are overwhelmed. Your emergency departments are at a breaking point. The strain on testing continues to be a problem too, Ohio turning to its National Guard for help, while Florida's Surgeon General offers a new approach, what he calls high-value testing, prioritizing those most at risk. And Jake, we have now hit another pandemic record. This time, the highest number of COVID cases among children, some 325,000 children testing positive for COVID last week. That's up about 64% from the week prior. The American Academy of Pediatrics calling this an alarming increase and saying there is an urgent need for more data on the impact of COVID on children. Jake.
2: Alexandra Field, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, you just heard President Biden say he wants schools to stay open. New York City Mayor Eric Adams makes a compelling case for keeping kids in schools as well. Take a listen.
9: It's a luxury
5: to say stay at home when you have all the tools that you needed. But for poor black brown children that you don't have access to some of the basic things, school is the best place for you. And I'm going to continue to have my children
2: be in a safe environment that all science is saying is the best place for them. Does the science say the best place for kids is in school?
10: I I think it's one of the safest places in in society, other than just being at home, in in a home where you know that COVID does not exist. Other than that, you know, uh, the schools, if they have certain things in place, as was just mentioned, including testing and test to stay programs, there's good data around that now, masking, universal masking, good ventilation, things like that, uh, you you could argue that schools are one of the safest places to stay. And obviously- there's all the downsides of not being in school. The one thing I will say, Jake, is that we are still in the middle of a very significant viral storm. So this way, the way this plays out is that you know they're going to be testing, but you may be getting a lot of positive tests, uh, and as a result of that, you may have you may have shortages of faculty and things like that because of just how much virus there is out there and how contagious it is.
2: Right. So let's talk about this. Um, masking is important vaccinations for everybody eligible, that's important, better ventilation if possible, and then testing. Is there anything more that schools can do to make schools even safer? Assuming they're doing those four things, and I don't know that every school is, but assuming they're doing all those four things, is, are, is there more that can be done so the teachers and faculty can feel comfortable about schools staying open?
10: I mean, th- those are clearly the big ones. You've, we've seen some school districts that start, started going on a little bit of a bifurcated schedule to cut down on the number of people in the building at any given time. Uh, the less population density, uh, the safer as well. That gets into the issues of ventilation um, also. But those, those are the big things. And, you know, as we've known, even pre-Omicron, if you have those things in place, you can argu- arguably create a very safe environment.
2: So there's a veteran friend of mine, and he lives in a rather impoverished part of the country, uh, and he has a kid who is immunocompromised. The school district apparently does not have uh, the ability to provide options for the immunocompromised kids, so he has to keep all his kids uh, a, at mm. home. Um, there needs to be options for immunocompromised kids, right?
10: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, th- this is one of those situations where even when we go back and talk about herd immunity, the concept of herd immunity was to, for the herd to protect the vulnerable. So you're describing someone who's vulnerable in this situation because of their underlying conditions. Um, right now, it's a tough situation because, again, there's just so much virus out there that it's a real risk, uh, a higher risk. The numbers will come down at some point, maybe even over the next few weeks. But right now, because of the significant storm of virus everywhere in the country, it's tough to create as many options. Ultimately, you would like to have the booster available to someone like your, your uh, son's, fr- your friend's son, and also the idea of a significant amount of vaccinated people around them.
2: Dr. Lena Wen came out with a new op-ed in the Post today. She says the price for shutting down schools and workplaces uh, is too steep. She writes, quote, "The tsunami of viral transmission means that many vaccinated people will have breakthrough infections, but the vast majority will have symptoms somewhere between a mild cold and the flu." As a result, it's unreasonable to ask vaccinated people to refrain from pre-pandemic activities." Unquote. Do you agree? Is it unreasonable?
10: I, you know, I, I read that piece, and and I, I don't think it's. I, Unreasonable. I think that it was a little bit more nuanced what she was saying was that the risk to individuals may be low, but the risk to society is still high, again, because of what is happening right now. I mean, if we were to look at this as a weather event, we're in the middle of a significant storm. And so uh, those same measures that she's talking about, uh, they're always applicable, but in the middle of a storm, they're particularly important, I think is the point she's trying to make.
2: President Biden made some news today. He announced he's doubling the U.S. government's order of Pfizer's new COVID antiviral drug, but the pills will not be available for months. What do Americans need to know about this?
10: This is a really interesting story here because I think, you know, this is a very effective uh, therapeutic for COVID. I mean, if you look at the data around this, and I pulled some of that again, you know, you're talking about 88% effectiveness at keeping people out of the hospital. Um, The problem is that, you know, overall, if you look at the number of doses that have been ordered, I think you got 20 million that have been ordered, but 10 million roughly uh, are set to be delivered by the end of June. Initial shipments, Jake, you can see they're small, just 265,000 doses this month. So if you just think about it, you know, if it's as effective as it is, you have that many people who are developing COVID, some who have symptoms and are at risk of hospitalization, It's not likely there will be enough at a time when it is the most needed. That's the concern. We get to summer, we can already anticipate the numbers are going to be much lower. The demand will be lower. So we wish that we would have had this much sooner. But nevertheless, future possible variants, things like that, this could be a very effective drug.
2: Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The traffic nightmare that just will not end. Hundreds of drivers spending more than 24 hours stuck in the same spot on the same highway, including a U.S. senator and former governor, then- Breaking news, CNN has learned the January 6th committee is going to ask Fox personality and Trump whisperer Sean Hannity to cooperate with the committee. Stay with us. In the national lead, too much snow, too fast, and crews could not keep up. That's at least how Virginia transportation officials today Tried to explain this nightmare you're looking at right now. Drivers stranded in a nearly 50-mile stretch of I-95 between D.C. and Richmond, Virginia. Some stuck there for nearly 24 hours. Though, to be clear, weather reports Sunday predicted heavy snowfall coming. Think about it. Think about what it was like for these drivers. Many with no food, no water, no bathroom. The entire time, as CNN's Pete Muntean reports, parts of this stretch are still a mess right now. The
11: backup on one of the busiest stretches of highway on the east coast stretched more than forty miles. For hours, stranded drivers moved only inch by inch after fourteen inches of snow fell near Fredericksburg, Virginia. Isaac Arcos shot this video of Icy I ninety five stuck for seven hours.
12: Since I was at a stop still and it was cold, I had to conserve my gas to be able to, you know, stay warm. So I turn in my I turn off my car every Maybe hour and turn it back on every uh, 15 minutes. I try to I try to rest my head as much as I could, but there was no resting.
13: I have never been this frightened on the road before.
11: State officials still do not know exactly how many got stuck in this chain reaction of jackknife tractor trailers and out-of-control cars. One trucker microwaved a meal for the car that was stranded next to him. Another driver traveling from Florida even handed a stranded Senator Tim Kaine an orange. I'm now 27 hours into my journey. I once did this by bicycle, and it took me 13 hours, so it's going to take me 27 or 28 by car. There's a lesson in there somewhere. State officials are apologizing to drivers, but insist that crews could not have possibly kept up with the quick clip of the snowfall. Crews decided not to pre-treat the interstate, underscoring that the storm started as rain, which would have washed the solution
6: away. We've been working on this through the night. Uh, we have the resources that we need. So um, that being VDOT, Virginia State Police, a lot of tow trucks on the scenes.
11: State officials called the backup enormous and unacceptable. Not enough for the countless drivers stuck in one of this snowstorm's scariest scenes.
13: My people from St. Louis called me and told me what was about to happen. Mm -hmm. How is it that they did not realize what was about to happen?
11: We just caught up with Senator Tim Kaine, who just made it to his office in Capitol Hill. Here is what he said. You know, it was kind of a survival challenge, and everybody was doing, well, how do you keep yourself warm? And so it's kind of, you have to figure out the strategy. It's like, turn on the heater, full blast, heat the car up, turn it off, and then try to catch some sleep. In about 20 or 30 minutes, it gets so cold in the car that you have to do it again. Jake, just to put in the context, the backup behind me, we are six miles away from where I-95 South officially shuts down 22 miles away from the bulk of where all these issues are. By the way, Jake, VDOT says the goal is to open up I-95 by tomorrow morning's rush. It's important to note here, no deaths, no injuries.
2: Jake. Piedmontine, hey, thanks so much. Let's bring in Jim DeFiti. He was stuck on I-95 in Virginia for more than 27 hours, made it to a nearby hotel. He's also an investigative reporter and friend of the show. He's with the CNN affiliate WFOR in Miami. Jim, great to see you. I'm so glad you're warm in uh, safe. So you were headed south from New York during the storm. Take us through what you went through.
14: Well, I've done this drive many a time. I grew up in Brooklyn. My family is still in Brooklyn. And I like to drive back and forth from Miami you know, to Brooklyn. And then I was on my way home after the holidays. And this is a trip that altogether should only take about 22 hours. I ended up being 27 hours in the car and I'm still you know, far away. But once you hit, once I hit Quantico on I-95, the entire interstate ground to a halt. And when I say ground to a halt, I mean all three lanes of traffic just stopped. No movement, not an inch, not ever, for 18 hours. For 18 hours, we sat there not knowing what was going on. You know, it wasn't until about hour 15 that we started getting alerts on our phone to tell us that help is on the way eventually, but it was a little too late by then. What you saw, though, and what heartened me was, you saw really the goodness of people. And you can't speak enough about truck drivers. You know, I got woken up at 7 a.m. with a tap on my window when somebody, when a truck driver came up with a case of water that he had had in his rig and came along and was handing them out to people and wanted to know if I had one. I took a bottle of water. About two hours later, an individual was walking up and down the I-95 with loaves of bread. He had decided... He had been parked behind a bread truck, called the owner of that bread truck, and the owner of the bread truck then contacted the driver and said, open up the doors, let them take whatever they want, and they started distributing loaves of bread to people. So it was the kindness of strangers that kept us through it, not the efficiency of
2: any state official. It's a literally biblical, uh, the water water, and loaves uh, for the masses. Uh, you took a screenshot uh, of the alert you got from VDOT, the Virginia Department of Transportation, saying... I-95 drivers, state and locals coming ASAP with supplies and to move you. So how long did it take after VDOT sent that message to see anyone who could actually help you? It was
14: about four hours later, and it was the Prince William County Fire Rescue Department that came up from behind and was literally pulling cars backwards down the wrong way on the interstate to an exit and getting us off that way. They ended up turning my car around, so I ended up driving northbound in the southbound lanes to get to an exit. But even once you got off I-95, they forced you back onto I-95 northbound, and I spent another two hours on that before I finally got off I-95 entirely and drove to Manassas. I figured the furthest I can get from I-95, the best. I'll spend the night here, and we'll figure it out tomorrow.
2: Uh, Jim, we heard from uh, Senator Tim Kaine who went through the same thing you did, except, I guess, going in the other direction, and he said at a certain point... It, it went from being, you know, the worst uh, commute of his life, the worst transportation experience of his life to, to literally a survival experience where he was just trying to stay warm enough, uh, conserve enough energy, uh, stay alive. Um, it, it, I mean, how scared were you? It, the thing that scared me
14: more than anything was whether or not I was going to run out of gas because then I was going to get stuck and I didn't want to ever get out of my car. Because the the road was a sheet of ice. My fear was that if I got out of the car, and I saw some people did it, and they were slipping and sliding. But if they were to fall, crack their head, there was no way to get any ambulance to them. So I heard the report that said no one was injured, no deaths. That's great. But that's uh, that's just dumb luck at this point. This could have been a lot more serious. And the fact that the governor and VDOT officials are saying that this was unexpected or that they couldn't really account for it, just seemed crazy to me since the snow stopped falling many, many, many hours before I even got to that point in Virginia where I got stuck. And the snow stopped by early afternoon. I didn't get off of I-95 to almost noon the next day.
2: Yeah, no, that's not going to cut it. We're going to need to hear more from Governor Northam and from the head of VDOT to find out what went so wrong, how it went so wrong, and how to make sure it never, never happens again. Jim Defiti, we're so glad you're okay. Thanks so much for joining us. Fox personality and Trump loyalist John Hannity is about to get an important letter from the January 6th Select House Committee. A member of that committee will join us live next. Stay with us. Breaking news in our politics. Lead sources confirming to CNN the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol insurrection plans to send a letter to Fox host Sean Hannity asking him to cooperate with its probe into the deadly attack. This was first reported by Axios. Let's get straight to CNN's Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Ryan, we know Hannity is a close Trump ally. Um, What might he reveal? Well, the committee
12: wants to know specifically what conversations he might have had with either the former president or even uh, his closest advisors in and around the events leading up to and on January 6th. And And we know that the committee already knows uh, about some of those interactions because it was part of their contempt report uh, against the former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, where uh, Hannity was sending texts to Meadows, begging him uh, to convince the former president to urge his supporters to leave the Capitol. So we know that Hannity uh, and Donald Trump have a very close relationship. Uh, Some have described him even as being a shadow chief of staff. Uh, So those communications that he had with the former president, the role that he may have played, uh, whether it be spreading the big lie or even plans around these rallies and the certification of the election results on January 6th are all of high interest to the committee. Now, at this point, Jake, they are not forcing him to come before him. This is not a legal uh, request that they're making. It is a voluntary one. They'd like him to do so on his own accord. Uh, they're sending him a letter asking it. His attorney, Jay Sekolo, telling CNN that they've not received that correspondence yet. Sekolo has said that he's already concerned about the impact this could have on uh, Hannity's First Amendment rights. But at this point, the committee's not talking about his broadcast. They want to know specifically about his conversations uh, with the president and his staff in and around the events of January
2: 6th. Right. And according to the committee, what Hannity texted, just to be clear, was, quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol? That's a text he sent to Mark Meadows. Ryan, we're also learning that the committee has not ruled out a subpoena for Donald Trump. Yeah, that's right. And they've made that very clear
12: uh, from the very beginning of this investigation that there is no one that is above the reach uh, of their inquiry. And they're reiterating this just a a couple of days before uh, the anniversary of January 6th. You know, of course, uh, the former president uh, is a key player in all of this investigation. Uh, And there's still serious questions, Jake, as to what role he played and whether or not there was any specific coordination between the riot itself and the president's actions. And they also want to know about what he didn't do, uh, as the riot was taking place. And these are all questions they want to answer.
2: Jake. Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Let's discuss all this with Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, who is on the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection. And Congresswoman Lofgren, you just heard uh, about uh, Jay Sekulow saying that uh, he's concerned about this request from your committee, not a subpoena, but a request uh, to speak with Sean Hannity is an infringement on his First Amendment uh, rights. What's your response? Uh, what information do you want from Mr. Hannity?
15: Well, we're not asking about his broadcasts or anything to do with his press activity. He is a fact witness. We have in our possession dozens of texts that he sent to uh, Mark Meadows and others in his role as a parent political operative. um, Indications of his communications with the president and others on strategy. And it's that that we would like to talk to him about. I want to make sure that everyone knows this isn't a subpoena. We've asked him. Uh, to cooperate with us as a fact witness uh, out of his sense of patriotism. And we hope that he will respond uh, because we have uh, so many of these texts and pieces of evidence indicating that he was um, outside of his role as a press person acting as a political operative.
2: Well, when you say that, I mean, uh, the committee's already released one of his texts, which uh, was basically asking Meadows... Is it possible for the president to go out and tell people to leave the Capitol in the middle of this? Uh, are there are there other subjects that he talks about when it comes to the entire campaign yeah. that Donald Trump uh, and his allies yes, waged?
15: Are. Yes, there are. There uh, We have in our possession, uh, as I say, dozens of texts uh, relating to a variety of subjects, the plotting um, on the sixth strategy about. White House counsel and the like, and we'd like to ask him about that. It's not about his broadcasts or his political views or anything of that nature.
2: There are other folks on Fox and other uh, MAGA media channels uh, that had relations, uh, close relationships with people in the White House. Uh, And in fact, we know uh, Laura Ingram and Brian Kilmeade and and others were texting uh, Mark Meadows uh, asking if he could call off uh, the mob from the Capitol. Are, Are you Requesting conversations with any of them as well?
15: Well, I don't want to get into what we're going to do next. As you know, we are following all of the threads uh, that have emerged to find the full facts. We Nothing is off limits in terms of our inquiry. But we do wish to get a complete picture uh, to present to the American people, but also to inform us as we look at potential legislation that would prevent something like this from happening again
2: we heard uh, the vice chair of the select committee investigating the insurrection uh, congresswoman liz cheney accused former president trump of quote supreme dereliction of duty uh, we asked a national security lawyer carrie cordero yesterday about that she said it would be really hard to make a case uh for dereliction of duty against donald trump maybe an obstruction case would be easier to prove uh you're a lawyer what do you think
15: Well, our committee is a legislative committee. We're not prosecutors. So that's for uh, a different part of government, the Department of Justice, to decide. I will say this. Putting aside the criminal code, he didn't do the right thing. He took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, and he failed to do that uh, for many hours while the Capitol was under attack. That wasn't the right thing to do.
2: It was one year ago today, so two days before the actual insurrection, that Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley went on Fox uh, and said this. I'm
14: going to pin you down on on what you're trying to do. You know, are you trying to say that as of January 20th that President Trump will be president?
2: Well, that, that depends on what happens on Wednesday. I mean, this is why we have the debate. No, it doesn't. This is why I mean, we the have states the votes. by
14: the Constitution say they certify the election. They
4: did certify it.
2: Brett Baier was right there, of course, and Senator Hawley was wrong. Uh, I've heard a lot of Republicans uh, blame Hawley and Senator Ted Cruz for giving hope to the MAGA mob that ended up storming the Capitol, that that it was possible that if action was taken, uh, that Trump would actually be reinstated or kept as president. Are you looking at the role of fellow lawmakers in the lead-up to the attack?
15: Well, we're looking at everything, but I think it's really uh, quite sad that uh, people who stormed the Capitol were lied to. They believed that lie and uh, they took action based on that lie. Many of them are paying a very heavy price for that uh, now. Uh, But, uh, you know, those who lied to them uh, need also to look in the mirror and see what role they played in uh, undermining our system of government, our constitution our democracy. In the end, um, it's up to the American people to decide what kind of government they want. Do they want to preserve and defend our constitutional republic, or do they want to slide into a different form of government? And uh, I can't hold Senator Hawley to account as a member of a House committee, but certainly the people of Missouri can ask him just what the heck he thought he was doing.
2: I want to get your reaction to what your fellow Democratic Congressman uh, Ruben Gallego said on CNN earlier today. Take a listen.
8: I think Merrick Garland has been extremely weak. uh, And I think there should be a lot more of the organizers of January 6th that should be arrested by now.
2: We have seen hundreds of rioters who have been arrested, but no one who organized any of the day's events. What do you think?
15: Well, I'm not in a position to know what's in the wings in the Department of Justice quite properly. They don't share with the public their investigations or who they're going to indict next. I mean, the rule for prosecutors uh, is if you have something, indict. And if you don't, don't say anything. So uh, I, I don't know what the Department of Justice is doing. I do hope that they are being vigorous and aggressive in hauling uh, before court those who need to be held to account. And all I can say is our committee is working as hard as we possibly can to bring all the information forward, uh, to recommend legislation, and to lay out the story for the American people. And if we find information that the Department of Justice may not have, we'll send it to them and they can... Uh, do their job, but uh, we're doing ours right now, Jake.
2: Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, thank you so much. Happy New Year to you. And this Thursday, join us for special coverage from inside the Capitol with police, lawmaker, political leaders. I'm going to be joined by Anderson Cooper for live coverage on January 6th, one year later. It starts at 8 p.m. Eastern this Thursday, only on CNN. Could a Zoom call stop war from breaking out? World leaders are hoping that their conversations might prevent Vladimir Putin from getting what he wants. Stay with us. In our world lead, a quote, extraordinary meeting this week of NATO leaders hoping to stop Russia's feared invasion of Ukraine. The top diplomatic officials from the 30 member nations will meet Friday to address Russia's troop buildup along Ukraine's border just days before the next round of scheduled talks between the U.S. and Russia. CNN's Alex Marquardt
16: joins us now live. And Alex Nato says the meeting is extraordinary. How so? Well, Jake, in that it's not long planned, it was just announced today. It's going to take place on Friday virtually, and it really just does emphasize... The full court press that the U.S. and its allies are putting on Russia to try to get it to dissuade Russia from invading Ukraine. Uh, This will be an opportunity on Friday for the U.S. and NATO allies to get on the same page about how to do that. And it sets up those conversations that are due to take place next week. It's a series of conversations uh, to try to influence Russia. They kick off on Monday in Geneva. Of course, that's where uh, that summit between Putin and Biden took place last year, last summer. That will be directly between the U.S. and Russia. And the State Department says that the conversations there will focus narrowly on issues directly involving the U.S. and Russia that they plan, they hope, uh, to come out of that with a few ideas, a few issues where they're on the same page to continue the discussions. Then, Jake, the conversations get broadened. A couple days later, they're going to meet in Brussels. The NATO-Russia Council, uh, as it's called, will be meeting. That will expand, of course, to include all of the NATO countries. Uh, And then the following day, It'll expand even farther for a third set of conversations uh, with the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So, Jake, all that to say that there are these three channels, these three tracks of conversations uh, to ultimately try to prevent and deter Russia from invading Ukraine. So Biden has already taken off the table
2: unilateral U.S. uh, deployment of troops uh, to Ukraine. So what options will the U.S. have, will NATO have if these diplomatic meetings to
16: resolve this buildup fail? Well, uh, ahead of a Russian invasion, uh, in order to prevent them from doing that, what the U.S. can do is really rattle the saber, uh, put more U.S. troops in uh, Eastern European countries, in NATO countries uh, that are close to Russia. They can send warships into the Black Sea, continue sending U.S. aircraft into Eastern Ukraine, so really show that U.S. military might and show that NATO is behind Ukraine, even if Ukraine uh, is not a member. And of course, Jake, they can continue to emphasize what would be devastating economic sanctions if Russia decides to invade Ukraine. Alex Marquardt, thanks so
2: much. A member of the British royal family, a young woman connected to Jeffrey Epstein, and a sexual assault allegation, a judge will be weighing in soon on this dramatic legal battle. Stay with us. In our world today, a judge saying he'll decide soon whether a sexual assault lawsuit should be dismissed against Britain's Prince Andrew. Andrew, of course, the second son of Queen Elizabeth. His case has ties to Jeffrey Epstein, the convicted pedophile who authorities say killed himself in prison in 2019. Prince Andrew's accuser is a woman named Virginia Roberts-Juffray. She claims Epstein trafficked her and forced her to have sex with his friends, including the prince, three times when she was underage. Prince Andrew denied this in a much-criticized 2019 BBC interview. Watch.
3: Are you saying you don't believe her? She's lying.
17: That's a very difficult thing to um, answer because I'm not in a position to know um, uh, what, what she's trying to um, uh, achieve.
2: Let's bring in CNN royal correspondent Max Foster. Max, it was a settlement unsealed yesterday between Giuffre and Epstein that led to Prince Andrew's attorneys in court. What's their argument?
17: So the fact that it was secret is really fundamental to the case here, as we learned today. So this was an agreement between Giuffre and Epstein that she wouldn't pursue or sue anyone connected with Epstein who could be potential defendants. So Andrew's side are arguing he is one of those potential defendants. Dufresne's side is saying he is not, he does not qualify as a third party to this agreement. So they're disagreeing on whether or not this agreement should be part of the case in New York. Where it got really interesting today during the hearing, was when the judge appeared to be leaning towards Dufresne's argument by saying that this was a secret agreement between Dufresne and Epstein. So only one of those two could enforce it because they were the only ones that knew about it and that was intentional. So therefore, Prince Andrew can't enforce this agreement. Therefore, he can't bring it in to this case in New York. So it does feel as if the judge is leaning towards Dufresne's argument here, and it could continue into potentially a trial in September, and it may not be dismissed. But as you say, the judge will rule on that very soon.
2: Today's hearing also comes just a few days after the guilty verdict for Epstein's former partner, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. Is Buckingham Palace concerned at all Uh, that Maxwell's conviction might lead to charges against Prince Andrew in any way.
17: Let's just say they're very concerned behind the scenes. Nothing on the record. On the record, Buckingham Palace, the family, everyone is staying well clear of this. A monarchy can't be seen to be getting involved or interfering with any sort of judicial process. But no doubt it's having a huge impact, all of this, on the royal brand. Um, Ultimately, it is a brand and it relies on trust. And Maxwell was a very, very close friend of Prince Andrew for a very long time, going back to 2000, if not before.
2: All right, Max Foster, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up one year after the insurrection and the Capitol Hill police force is down 400 officers. What might that mean for protecting democracy? Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead, on Jake Tapper. This hour, President Biden pleads with parents to get their kids vaccinated and says schools should stay open, but our school districts and teachers unions on board? Plus, gearing up for more Democratic infighting, how party leadership plans to pressure some Democrats to pass election reform, and leading our show this hour, Capitol Police this afternoon, assuring Americans that the force is stronger and better prepared to carry out its mission than it was on January 6, 2021. The U.S., of course, is on edge with fears of more violence on the horizon as the nation nears the one year anniversary of the deadly insurrection. This comes as the U.S. Capitol Police Chief is warning that the force is still 400 officers short of full operating capacity, in part due to resignations and retirements following last January 6. As CNN's Paula Reed reports for us now, the trauma of what happened on January 6, 2021. Is still very real for many officers still on the Capitol Police force.
7: Just days before the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger addressed the current state of his embattled department. Uh,
5: The United States Capitol
8: Police uh, as an organization is stronger and better prepared to carry out its mission today um, than it was before January 6th of last year.
7: A report last month by Inspector General Michael Bolton found that only about a quarter of the 104 recommended changes to the U.S. Capitol Police following the January 6 riot have been implemented. But today, Manger said 60 other reforms are in progress.
8: There was no question in my mind, looking at all of the recommendations, um, that intelligence, operational planning, and um, Getting the, our civil disturbance unit up, up to where it needs to be were the three biggest issues, and those are the ones that we worked on first, and those are the ones that, frankly, are, are largely
7: completed. Still, the department faces daunting challenges. At least four January 6th responders have died by suicide over the last year. The department also has not been able to fully address staffing issues. It has lost over 130 officers through retirement or resignation after January 6th, and the force is still about 400 officers short of where it needs to be. And those who remain still have scars from the attack.
5: This whole past year has been very difficult.
7: Sergeant Aquilino Gunnell, a 15-year veteran of the force, was assigned to guard the west entrance to the capital on January 6th. Today, he reflected on that haunting experience.
6: So the the magnitude of what we encounter was something like I never experienced myself, not even when I was overseas in, in combat.
7: Gunnell was out for months because of injuries sustained during the insurrection and still grapples with trauma from that day.
6: When I returned to the Capitol on November 3rd, uh, I hesitated before going in, uh, to be honest. Um, For a moment, I thought that uh, it was going to be gut-wrenching to uh, even take the first step out of my car.
7: Manger says he is aware of several events planned for Thursday, but there is no intelligence that indicates there will be any problems. Now, the Department of Homeland Security chief also said today he is not aware of any specific credible threats on the anniversary of the insurrection. Jake?
2: All right, Paula Reid, thanks so much. Let's discuss with former FBI senior intelligence advisor and CIA counterterrorism official Phil Mudd and Terrence Gaynor, former chief of the U.S. Capitol Police chief. Let me start with you. The current Capitol Police chief, Thomas Manger, says the force is stronger and better prepared today than it was before the attack a year ago. Do you agree?
5: Absolutely, I agree. I know Tom very well. I know the work he's been doing. Uh, Jake, I've been talking to officers at all level, and they agree things are a lot better in equipment, training, information, intelligence, uh, and radio communications.
2: Phil Mudd, after the attack, the Capitol Police Inspector General issued more than 100 security upgrade recommendations. Uh, They say the police, uh, Capitol Police say they've only finished a third of those. Uh, Chief Manger says today that about 60 others are underway. One such as stronger windows, which can't be installed during winter. We don't know exactly what's remaining on the list. Now, some House Republicans are out there saying nothing has changed or at least not enough to actually make the Capitol safer. Is the U.S. Capitol properly protected today?
18: I think in one sense it is. If you look at physical, physical security, and I was watching the briefing today and you anticipate what happens in a couple of days. It's hard to imagine we'll see a repeat either this week, next week, the week after of what we saw a year ago. I, I do think that there's a broader question here that we need to focus on. And that's not just on physical security, that's on the security uh, in this country of how we speak about political violence. What I've seen change over the last year isn't just the threat to windows, It's more and more politicians saying what happened is maybe an an acceptable part of the political landscape. I don't care how hard you secure windows or how many people you hire. If this starts to be part of the American political dialogue that is violence against a building, no intel guy, no security guy can secure that building.
2: Chief, um, Chief Manager says the Capitol could withstand another January 6th-style attack. Do you agree?
5: As it stands right now, I don't think it could without a lot more forces. One of the things we keep skipping, in addition to what Phil just mentioned, is the fact that there is not a secure perimeter around there. So you're always relying on the best intelligence you can in a number of offers to be able to fight and repel hordes. As long as there's not crowds of five and 10,000, they are in good shape. But everybody refuses to address a, a more secure way to let people onto the campus, let's say, a gateway where everybody is checked before they come on the campus, and then you can be in control of that. So those you we are relying on those officers to be able to keep people off the steps, away from those windows that still aren't repaired, and uh, be ready for anything.
2: So, Phil, um, you had a decades-long career in law enforcement, counterterrorism. We know the Capitol Police Force is about 400 officers short of full operating capacity. We, we've also heard, by the way, Uh, Before the Capitol attack uh, of low morale caused by a lot of the um, Black Lives Matter uh, defund the police movement, low morale among police officers. How difficult is it to recruit good officers and retain a current workforce uh, with all of this political violence, uh, especially what happened on the Capitol, I guess?
18: but i think extremely difficult and maybe impossible i mean if you contrast this to what we faced at the bureau and at the cia after 9 11 america despite the mistakes we made they supported us every time i saw somebody at a public event they would come up almost without exception and say we love you guys including parents who lost children in the towers who came up to me personally if you contrast that to what we see in terms of treatment of police today and even how some members of congress have spoken about the people the, the officers who protected them. It's a polar opposite. I I guess I'd worry not just that they can't recruit, but to close, Jake, if you have to open the aperture to recruit people who maybe aren't up to the standards that you want, that's not where you want to be. I'd worry just, I'd worry about recruiting people who maybe shouldn't be there in the first place because they can't get anybody to show up.
2: Uh, And uh, Chief, uh, a recent threat assessment warns that, quote, threat actors might take advantage of the one-year anniversary of the January 6th attack. Federal officials, though, as you heard from Paula, They say there's no currently no specific or credible threats. How concerned are you? Well, I hope they learned a lot of lessons,
5: our intelligence partners, across the spectrum of state, local, and uh, federal to to share that information. But it's actually similar to the uh, attitude they had a couple days before the 6th. That said, Jake, I think like after 9-11, everybody got sharper. After the uh, January 6th of last year, everybody's gotten sharper. We have to stay on guard. And it doesn't help that members of Congress, the Republican members of Congress in large part, are saying it's not secure enough and they're not doing much to dial down the temperature and say honest things and push to uh, calm the uh, rancor we have throughout the, the
2: United States. Chief Gaynor, Philmont, thanks to both of you. Uh, really appreciate it. Coming up, we're going to have a look at some of the rioters from January 6th, including one who says he's embarrassed by what he did that day. Plus, we'll talk to a pediatric expert about the importance of keeping kids in classrooms as one major teachers union is about to vote on going virtual again. Stay with us. In our health lead from coast to coast, a growing dilemma. As President Biden says schools should remain open, school districts are struggling with what to do amid a skyrocketing number of children hospitalized with COVID. Although most school districts are open for in person learning, around 3,200 schools from Seattle to Newark, New Jersey have instituted what amounts to a, a patchwork of delays and remote starts. In Chicago, the country's third largest school district, teachers are going to vote tonight whether to take action against in-person learning. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Chicago. Omar, what does the teachers' union want? Well, Jake, they've been at the bargaining table this afternoon, and part of the concerns from the Chicago
8: Teachers' Union is they don't believe the current measures in place from the school district are enough to keep students and staff safe in person. And that comes from not enough access to testing. Also, the fact that only about a third of the total student population is vaccinated, even though... The rate for teachers is much higher within a context of record COVID-19 case numbers over the course of the past few weeks for students, staff, and of course, the city of Chicago as a whole. Now, the school district has said going virtual would be too detrimental to education. And part of what they've proposed is school-level metrics for when to go fully remote. And an example they put out was when about 50% of the student population is forced to isolate or quarantine. And that comes on top of... The universal masking they've instituted and maintaining the primary spread is not happening in the classrooms, but instead in the surrounding communities. But, of course, as of right now, the union is still set to vote, uh, a vote that will carry on likely until 10 o'clock Eastern time tonight. And if they vote yes to go virtual, they won't end up going virtual. The school district says school will be canceled. And what are you hearing from
2: parents in Chicago?
8: Well, parents shake, as you can imagine, are a mixed bag on this. But one sentiment that they share is that this is deja vu. We went through a similar situation like this last year. And another shared sentiment is frustration over what happens to these students' educations when these two sides negotiate. Uh, and virtual learning is on the table. One parent in particular with a first grader in the Chicago public school system told me that our children have a right to quality in-person education and teachers that will help them reach their academic potential. Anything short of that is called professional negligence. My wife will have to quit her job in order to be home for the remote learning experience. The hardship this will cause to working families, mine included, is criminal. And another parent who pulled her child Out of the school system last year because of these frustrations said that the blame lies with the school district. They need to figure it out. But the district says they have. The union says they haven't, Jake.
2: Omar Jimenez in Chicago. Thanks so much. Let's talk about this with Dr. Paul Offit. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's also a member of the FDA's advisory committee. So, um, Dr. Offit, you heard Omar's report from Chicago. Um, We know that as long as schools are embracing vaccines, ventilation, testing and masking, Health experts say it's safe for kids to go back. It's safe for in-person learning. But there are there is a shortage in testing. So what should schools do? I think in Philly, uh, where you are, they they voted. uh, The schools are, are remote now, right?
6: I think 81 of the 200 schools in Philadelphia are remote, but but still almost a little more than half are, are still going back to school because we want kids to be back in school, right? I mean, nobody has suffered, I think, the social isolation from not being in school more than children. And for many, it's the only decent meal they get during the day. And distance learning is in many ways a contradiction in terms. I think we want kids to be in school, but if we want them to be in school, then we have to do everything we can to keep them in school. The testing is a problem. So I think, I think what we have to do is make use of the fact or understand the fact that we just don't have testing it's available and so the best thing to do then that if, if a child obviously has covid they should stay home until they're completely asymptomatic and then come back to school with masks and for anybody who's been exposed they need to mask for 10 days. But I think with masking and social distancing and vaccination, you know, we can really get on top of that. The teachers have to be vaccinated. The bus drivers have to be vaccinated as and the children over five should be vaccinated. And then we can have the thing we all want, this precious thing we all want, which is to have our children back in school. But we should do it in a responsible way. And, and vaccination and masking and social distancing and having the right filtration is that responsible way.
2: A piece in the New York Times this morning says, quote, for the past two years, large parts of American society have decided harming children was an unavoidable side effect of COVID-19. And that was probably true in the spring of 2020 when nearly all of society shut down. But the widespread availability of vaccines since last spring also raises an ethical question. Should children suffer to protect unvaccinated adults who are voluntarily accepting COVID risk for themselves and increasing everybody else's risk too? Right now, the United States is effectively saying Yes. The argument um, being made there is most of the people in the hospitals uh, are adults, overwhelmingly, and most of the adults uh, in the hospitals are unvaccinated. And and that we are making this decision as a society. Kids can suffer because we don't want adults who have the vaccine right there to, to get hurt.
6: Well, the the certainly children are suffering this infection. I mean, our, our Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is now seeing many, many children, including as many as fifteen in the intensive care unit, who have uh, have COVID. And I think you know the vaccine is safe and effective, um, and so we should give it. Unfortunately, if you look at the twelve to seventeen year old, only about fifty five percent are vaccinated, so forty five percent aren't. For the for the five to eleven year old, only fifteen percent are vaccinated, so eighty five percent aren't. I think you can never make a case to a parent that they should vaccinate a child to protect an older adult. I think you should vaccinate a child because it protects the child. And we do need to protect children because although they do get infected less frequently and less severely, they certainly can be infected severely and causing them to suffer and be hospitalized and occasionally die. About a thousand children less than 18 years of age have died from this infection. We have vaccines in place for diseases that cause far fewer deaths than that.
2: We talked to a pediatrician from a Chicago hospital uh, last week and a different one uh, in a Texas hospital. And they say that the kids that are hospitalized with COVID, uh, because of COVID, uh, are almost entirely unvaccinated. Is that, the, is that the case at CHOP?
6: Yes, not only are the children unvaccinated, but their parents are unvaccinated and the siblings are unvaccinated. I mean, you're watching these parents suffer the fact that their children are brought up to the ICU, sedated, you know, have it, put on a ventilator, and you're watching the parents cry and you're thinking this was all preventable. You could have vaccinated your child, you could have vaccinated yourself. And it's just really heartbreaking. This was heartbreaking enough before we had a vaccine. Now that you have a vaccine to prevent all this, it's doubly heartbreaking.
2: Get, Get your kids vaccinated. Dr. Paul Offit, thank you so much. Good to see you as always. Breaking news, the January 6th committee has just officially asked Sean Hannity from Fox to voluntarily cooperate with their questions about his conversations with folks at the White House. Find out what they want from him specifically next. We have some breaking news for you in our politics lead right now. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection has just released the letter that its members sent to Fox News host Sean Hannity today asking for his cooperation with their probe into the deadly attack. Let's bring in CNN's Jamie Gangel. Jamie, walk us through what the letter says and what the committee is asking Mr. Hannity for.
13: So first of all, they're asking him for voluntary cooperation, Jake, and it's based on the fact that they say they have a series of texts, multiple texts from him to former chief of staff Mark Meadows, as well as other members of the White House staff. Uh, let me just read to you from the top of the letter. They say to Hannity that it, uh, it indicates that he had, quote, advanced knowledge regarding President Trump's and his legal team's planning for January 6th. It goes on to say that it appears Hannity was, quote, expressing concerns and providing advice to the president and certain White House staff regarding the planning. It goes on to say that Sean Hannity, quote, also had relevant communications while the riot was underway and in the days thereafter. And that, quote, the communications make you a fact witness In our investigation, within the letter, there are they have released a number of text messages. They say that there are others in addition to that. But let me just give you one example, Jake. They refer to a text message on January 5th. This would be obviously the night before the riot. And they say, On January 5th, the night before the violent riot, you sent and received a stream of texts. You wrote, quote, I'm very worried about the next 48 hours with the counting of the electoral votes scheduled for January 6th at 1 p.m. This is now the committee saying to Hannity, why were you concerned about the next 48 hours. So, Jake, we're, we're still going through it. We're just looking at this letter now. But I, I think it gives you a sense of two things. One is while they say in the letter that they have the utmost respect for the First Amendment, they feel that Sean Hannity has relevant information that does not interfere with the First Amendment. And it's also obvious from their letter that they have, it would seem, dozens, if not more, email exchanges in this critical period of time, Jake.
2: Jamie Gangale, thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss, Carrie Cordero, former counsel to the U.S. Assistant Attorney General for National Security. Um, uh, Carrie, uh, just looking at this letter uh, that the January 6th committee has sent uh, to Fox host Sean Hannity, they have a lot of evidence they seem to have, they seem to be claiming, about, whom Hannity was talking to, what he was discussing. Um, one of the things that it seems clear that they're trying to establish a fact pattern that Sean Hannity was worried about what Trump and Trump's mob would do because he didn't think that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm uh, extrapolating here, but it doesn't sound like Hannity is saying, you know, we're going to be able to hold on to the presidency. He seems worried about what Trump's going to do.
0: Right. So there's there's obviously facts that they have in their possession that indicate that Sean Hannity uh, was in communication with folks at the White House and that he can potentially provide insights into the thinking that was going on either by the president, the former president himself or others who were close to him to try to understand the events leading up to January 6th itself. But Jake, just on giving this letter a very quick look as it just came out, there's three things that stand out to me of the letter. Number one, they're asking for voluntary cooperation from Sean Hannity. So this is not a subpoena to a member of the news media. This is the committee asking for voluntary cooperation. And that's important. The second thing that stands out to me is that they say they wanna work with his counsel. So again, it they this is not a subpoena. This is not a demand. This is the committee asking for his participation in this constitutional process to get to the bottom of the facts. And the third thing that stands out to me in the letter is that they say that they are not interested in information that's related to news gathering. And so for members of the media who are on the receiving end of a request from a government entity, the fact that it's not related to his news gathering activity is also important.
2: Most Trump allies have refused to engage uh, with the committee, ones at at this uh, level, um, like uh, Mark Meadows or or Steve Bannon, Um, assuming that Hannity uh, refuses. And we don't know what he's going to do. I should should be clearer with that. Most people that the committee is asked to speak to have cooperated, but some very top-level people have not. If Hannity doesn't cooperate... Is there a strong case for criminal contempt of Congress? Uh, Executive privilege doesn't apply, but at the same time, he is a member of the press. And even if the committee is saying, hey, we're not trying to get involved with uh, your your press gathering, your news gathering operation, um, that comes very close if not going over a line in terms of a journalist talking to people in the White House.
0: So on one hand, Jake, what the committee's way of operating has demonstrated is that no one is above the law, and people who are acting in their individual capacities, not in government positions even, but especially in their individual capacities, don't have the right to deny participating with the committee and responding to a request. But at this point, this is voluntary cooperation that they're asking for. They haven't served a subpoena yet. And so really the question is, Will he engage with the committee? And so one of the things that I'll be interested to see how this plays out is whether he engages with the committee only through personal counsel or whether Fox News acts on his behalf. Because if the news organization acts on his behalf, that will then raise the media side of this more.
2: Yeah. All right, Kerry Cordero, to be continued. Thanks so much. More than 700 rioters have so far been charged for attacking the Capitol nearly one year after the insurrection, while plenty continue to stand by their actions, insisting they did nothing wrong. CNN's Jessica Schneider now reports some are expressing remorse for being a part of the violent mob.
18: It's like if you ask me if I do it again, I want to say yes, but then I question the back of my head, would I?
3: Former Proud Boy Josh Pruitt describes his past year as an emotional train wreck.
18: I don't feel like I did anything wrong but knowing the consequences that came out of it would be the part that would make me question it.
3: Prosecutors have laid out an array of video as evidence against him. (laughs) Pruitt can be seen confronting Capitol Police officers after walking in through the shattered front doors. And inside the Capitol crypt, Pruitt is caught smashing a sign. (laughs) All of it leading to eight federal charges against him, including counts for destruction of government property and acts of physical violence. But Pruitt defends his actions that day, clinging to the big lie that former President Donald Trump continues to spread and saying he has no plans to plead guilty.
18: I was just a patriot out there, you know, um, protesting against um, what I think is a stolen
3: election. Trying to send me to prison for a few years over this, I think, is a complete joke. Are you concerned that you could be, in fact, sent to prison? I am concerned. Pruitt is among the more than 700 people now charged in connection with the Capitol attack. 70-plus defendants have been sentenced so far, about 30 getting jail time. The first week in January, I have to report to prison. Jenna Ryan flew a private jet to Washington and notably boasted that storming the Capitol was one of the best days of her life. Her lack of remorse, in part, prompted a judge to impose a 60-day sentence after she pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor. The judge saying he wanted to make an example of her after she shamelessly tweeted that she wouldn't get jail time since she has blonde hair, white skin, and did nothing wrong.
1: All those 600 people that have been arrested are now wondering what's going to happen to them, and prison is can happen.
3: Several of those sentenced are expressing remorse. Eric Rau got 45 days in jail after pleading guilty to just one count of disorderly conduct. Federal Judge James Bosberg admonished Rao for trying to undermine the peaceful transfer of presidential power, what he called one of the country's bedrock acts. Rau struggled to speak at sentencing, telling the judge, There is no excuse for my actions on January 6th. I can't tell you how much this has just twisted my stomach every day since it happened. Another rioter, Robert Reeder, got three months in jail. During his sentencing, he pleaded with a judge, saying he lost his family, his job, and his place within his church community after January 6th. I am embarrassed. I am in shame, Reader said. The hurt that I have caused to other people, not just to myself, has left a permanent stain on me, society, the country, and I don't want to be ever remembered for being part of that crowd. Josh Pruitt, though, still isn't willing to admit guilt or cooperate with prosecutors. (gasps) Video of Pruitt pledging to become a member of the Proud Boys in November 2020 went viral. Pruitt says prosecutors are asking him to help make the case against other Proud Boys facing conspiracy charges, but he claims he no longer associates with the extremist group. I don't have
18: anybody to throw under the bus, nor would I anyway. Um, And I just, what I'm saying doesn't fit their narrative, because they would like me to come forward and say that it was planned. And I'm like,
19: no, it wasn't.
3: Pruitt expects his case to go to trial and says he still stands by the big lie. I didn't
19: believe the election was stolen, for sure.
3: And do you still believe
19: that? I still believe it.
3: And Pruitt isn't the only one. I actually spoke with several accused rioters on the phone. All of them declined to talk on camera. They cited their ongoing cases or their desire to step back from the public glare But the handful that I did speak to told me they still believe the election was stolen. Some even dispute that it was just pro-Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol building on January 6th. They have falsely told me that they say members of Antifa were involved. Now, meanwhile, Jake, the FBI is still trying to identify more than 350 people who they say committed violent acts on the Capitol grounds. So this investigation, Jake, far from over at this point.
2: All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. This Thursday, join us for an unprecedented gathering inside the U.S. Capitol with police, lawmakers, political leaders. Anderson Cooper and I will host our coverage live from the Capitol, January 6th, one year later at 8 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, there's new pressure on West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from fellow Democrats. The senator's response is next. In our politics lead, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin today talking about turkeys when addressing the intense pressure campaign underway to get him to support a rules change in order to pass election reform legislation. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer saying the chamber chamber. will vote on the filibuster rule change by mid-January as a way to pass an election reform bill with a simple 51 vote majority. It's a move Manchin and Arizona Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema have both said they are not on board with. CNN's Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. And Manu, you spoke with Manchin today. What did he have to say about Schumer's plan? Well,
9: he's not for it. And the way that this will happen, Jake, in order to get a large-scale package done to change voting laws, they had to actually get at least 10 Republicans to support overcoming a filibuster or they had to change the Senate rules. In order to change the Senate rules, you either have a two-thirds majority to do that or you can do it along straight party lines, meaning in the 50-50 Senate, one senator defection could be enough to scuttle the effort to change the rules. And Joe Manchin is making it very clear. Both he, along with Kirsten Sinema, opposed the idea of changing the rules along straight party lines, a process called the nuclear option on Capitol Hill because of concern that it could be replicated by future majorities to run roughshod over the minority. Now, one of the ideas that Democrats are trying to pressure Joe Manchin on at this moment is to support the idea of a carve-out, allow voting rights legislation to be approved by a simple majority of 51 senators circumventing a filibuster. But when I asked Joe Manchin about that, if he was open to this idea at all, he made clear he was not.
14: Let me just say that to being open to Uh, a rules change that would uh, create a nuclear option, Uh, it's it's very, very difficult, it's a heavy lift. And the reason I say it's a heavy lift is that once uh, you change uh, a rule or you have a carve out, and I've always said this, anytime there's a a carve out, uh, you eat the whole turkey, (laughs) there's nothing left, but let's just see, the conversations are still ongoing, I've been talking to everybody, we've been having good conversations,
9: now conversations are ongoing Jake at this exact moment at Chuck Schumer's office Joe Manchin is there at this moment talking with a handful of other Democratic senators about whether there is any way forward to get him on board he said he's willing to talk but getting to the point where Democrats want him to go where is to change the rules to pass a sweeping measure to make it to uh, to either overturn a 2013 Supreme Court ruling gutting the Voting Rights Act or changing imposing a whole suite of reforms. Getting to that point is a very heavy lift, as he says, Jake. But the Democratic leaders are still pushing.
2: All right, Jack. Manu Rajo on, on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Here to discuss Democratic Congressman Jonah Goose of Colorado. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Congressman, thanks for joining us. So you just heard Senator Manchin say he's opposed to this rules change, proposed rules change that will allow election reform legislation to pass with a simple majority in the Senate. Usually you need 60 votes. Um, I guess one of the questions I have is, what makes you think that this could happen? And then when Republicans next take over the Senate chamber, they wouldn't have a carve out for, let's say, a nationwide ban on abortion or a nationwide concealed carry law. I mean, haven't we all learned in Washington, D.C., just in the last 20 years, once something is eroded, once a standard or, or, or a voting um, measure is eroded, it just doesn't come
20: back? Well, it's good to be with you, Jake. Uh, first, before I address the merits of the proposal, I would just say I take Senator Manchin at his word that, as he said, it's a difficult lift for him personally, but that also there are good conversations happening. And so I, I trust Leader Schumer uh, to engage in those conversations with Senator Manchin and the other senators as they try to chart a path forward to some reform of the filibuster to ultimately enable us to consider voting rights legislation. To the core of your question, look, at the end of the day, there are many in uh, my caucus, in the Democratic caucus, who uh, believe that the Senate should eliminate the filibuster entirely. The Senate, uh, juxtaposed against the House, is is a broken institution. You know uh, that the volume of legislation that the House considers as we do the people's work uh, is uh, compared to the Senate. Uh, very, very much, much larger. And the reality is, the Senate, as it is today, uh, you have a situation in which a few obstinate senators uh, can stop and impede progress on a host of issues, including the protection of constitutional rights. And of course, no right more important than the right to vote, which is sacrosanct under our Constitution and the right from which all the rights flow. So, look, it, from my perspective, I'm comfortable letting the chips fall where they may, eliminating an archaic rule like the filibuster to ensure uh, that it does not preclude and impede the ability of a majority in the Senate to make progress on issues that the American people care about. Uh, that's why we have elections, uh, Jake, and, and I think that's a, a far more prudent way forward. Obviously, there are some who disagree with that. There are a number of proposals being considered uh, when it re- as it relates to reforming the filibuster, including a talking filibuster, a carve-out, as Manu said. I think all of that is on the table. I'm hopeful that we'll see progress before MLK Day. But you you still didn't get to, I mean,
2: that's why we have elections. I mean, Republicans have controlled the House and the Senate and the White House before. They will again. Uh, There is this 60 vote threshold right now uh, when it comes to uh, non-reconciliation, non-economic bills. Um, What will you say to your constituents next time, assuming Democrats get rid of the filibuster, next time Republicans control the House and the Senate and the White House, And they pass a bill outlawing abortion nationwide, allowing concealed carry of guns nationwide. And they'll say, well, you told us getting rid of the filibuster was a good idea. And now look what's happened.
20: Yeah, what I'll I'll say, Jake, is the same thing that I say to constituents here in Colorado, where we have a legislature, a state legislature, a House and a Senate where an archaic supermajority rule like the filibuster does not exist. Uh, The voters here in our state elect state representatives and state senators to uh, ultimately protect the general welfare and to enact laws that are responsive to their needs. And that's why we have elections at the end of the day. Uh, To the extent that voters disagree with the decisions made by a majority in the state Senate or in the state House, as the case may be, Uh, they have the opportunity to elect new representatives and new senators. And I I would think uh, that that system would work the best at the federal level in light of the reality that on so many issues uh, we are unable to make any progress in the United States Senate because uh, a simple senator, one senator, two senators, a few senators can impede all progress. And by the way, Jake, it doesn't just extend Uh, to matters of public policy per se. It also extends to the personnel decisions that the administration makes, Republican and Democrat. You know uh, that uh, just a few months ago, because of Senator Cruz and some other senators, Mm -hmm. uh, the president was unable to have a wide array of ambassadors confirmed to some pretty highly sensitive posts abroad and overseas. Uh, Thankfully, uh, that logjam was broken, but I don't think that's the way the Senate should function in the 21st century.
2: Congressman Joe Neguse, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Coming up next, the cost of zero COVID, how one city is imposing weeks-long guarantees, leaving some people with long-lasting trauma. Stay with us. In our world lead, Hong Kong has prided itself as one of the safest cities during the pandemic. But one psychiatrist is now telling CNN, that that safety comes at a heavy price. CNN's Will Ripley dives into the city's required 21-day quarantine and what some people are describing as post-traumatic stress because of it. In
19: zero-COVID Hong Kong, pandemic protocols have paralyzed this once-busy travel hub. The arrival process that used to take minutes now drags on for hours. Mandatory testing at the airport waiting hours for the results. The lucky ones test negative and spend up to 21 days in self-paid hotel quarantine. Daryl Chan is not one of the lucky ones.
11: I've had both of my jabs. I've been boosted. I, I you know, didn't think, didn't ever think that I would
19: be uh, you know, actually test positive on arrival. 13 hours after landing in Hong Kong, Chan was in an ambulance. His luggage left at the airport. He tested positive for the Omicron variant. Even without symptoms, his minimum hospital stay is nearly a month. Do you worry about your mental health as these days turn into weeks? Yeah, absolutely, because I've never been in a situation like this before.
1: In general, there is increased sense of um, isolation, anxiety, and in some severe cases, even post-traumatic stress.
19: Hong Kong psychiatrist Dr. Elizabeth Wong says longer quarantines can be
1: more traumatic. And then then we have a lot of changes between the seven days and the 14 days and the 21 days. And that was when people reported more stress, especially with a longer period of quarantine.
19: Daryl's day begins with a wake-up jingle. Attention, please. He takes his own vitals. Calls and messages with friends and family help pass the time. Social media has really helped actually you <clears throat> know definitely makes you feel less alone one of his greatest struggles sharing a room and a bathroom with two strangers
11: but I think what has definitely impacted me the most <laughs> so far is the feeling of just you know not having the freedom and regressing into almost feeling like you're back at school you know with um Controlled wake-up and bedtimes, not being able to control
19: what you can eat. Hospital meals often consist of mystery meat. The bigger mystery? Chan's release date. He's supposed to start a new job, a new life in Hong Kong. What's the worst part of this?
11: I think the worst part is not knowing when I'll be able to get out.
19: For now, all he can do is wait. From his hospital bed, freedom. Feels like a lifetime away. I called Daryl last night. He is still testing positive, Jake. He doesn't know how many more days this is going to be. Maybe 5, 10, 15 days. The number of people in his room, it was 3 at the time of our interview. It's now 6, all with the Omicron variant, all without symptoms, all essentially stuck there together, waiting until they test negative and then can be phased back out into zero COVID Hong Kong. It is really extraordinary the lengths that are being taken here by comparison with my friends in the U.S. who, you know, you basically can get on a plane, you can walk around, and and it's not a big deal, even if you do test positive. Certainly nothing like what's happening here, Jay.
2: And Will, you personally are no stranger to life in quarantine, given that you travel all over Asia for CNN. What's that been like?
19: I think it's almost five months of my life, uh, this pandemic in quarantine. My experience is very different from Daryl's because we are basically locked in a hotel room uh, that we pay for as a company or you pay for out of your own pocket when you travel. It's very isolating. I didn't realize how much of an introvert I am, Jake, and how much it really creeps me out in some ways to be around big groups of people when I get out of quarantine.
2: All right. Will Ripley, thank you so much. Thanks for the work that you do. Trips that were supposed to take an hour turning into an entire day in brutal Snowy conditions, the hundreds of drivers stranded overnight ahead. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the
11: Sleep Number Smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.